Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hummelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about the wrong kind of maid. What is the wrong kind of maid, you ask? Well, in this case, MAID is an acronym for Medical Assistance in Dying. That's why it's the wrong kind of MAID. This is not the kind of MAID that's a blessing to your life. This is the kind of MAID that's not a blessing to your life. That's some world-class newspeak, like right out of 1984. Yes. They're trying to frame assisted <laughs> suicide as something helpful, yes. like a MAID, someone it's that like helps you. It's like a MAID, just comes and helps you in your distress. By the way... This uh, episode of the podcast is sponsored by Quorum Deo Student Ministry because Bethany <laughs> Bethany was hanging out with Travis, our student ministry director, and apparently there were some Toblerone chocolate bars just in the student ministry closet somewhere. Yeah. So, so we're he having blessed one. us. He blessed we us. We are eating Swiss chocolate. The student ministry at Quorum Deo has some high standards for their <laughs> we really candy do. bars. We really like do. Only the best chocolate. Not Hershey's. <laughs> Not Hershey's. Imported from Switzerland. The articles, I, I have been seeing um, articles about this uh, medical assistance in dying in Canada come across my newsfeed for about six months. I finally s- slowed down to read some of them and just think about this. And I realized, wow, this is a place where a Christian ethic need, needs to come to bear. And where, as we say in the intro to this podcast, if we're thinking about how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of everyday life, this is a place where we need to do some clear gospel thinking. So there are two articles we will be referencing, both out of First Things. I'm going to read a few um, excerpts from those articles so that you listeners who are unfamiliar with this will be up to speed on what's going on. So let me read from Canada's Killing Regime, uh, October 2022, First Things. The article begins, On October 7, Dr. Louis Roy of the Quebec College of Physicians stated that in the view of his organization— Euthanasia for children younger than age one is appropriate if the child has grave and severe syndromes or severe malformations. He was testifying before the Canadian House of Commons Special Joint Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying. Roy's statement is merely the latest episode in a series of euthanasia horror stories from Canada that are shocking even to dulled Western sensibilities. Canada's Supreme Court overturned criminal prohibitions on assisted suicide in Carter v. Canada in 2015. Shortly afterward, Parliament passed Bill C-14 in 2016, which legalized medical aid in dying, or MAID, for adults with enduring and intolerable suffering and a reasonably foreseeable death. In 2021, Bill C-7 was passed, which legalized MAID for those struggling with mental illness. Canada has become an international cautionary tale. Uh, The Toronto Star, the largest and most liberal newspaper in the country, called it Hunger Games-style social Darwinism. When the liberal newspaper is calling it that, you should probably sit up and take notice. Wow. Wow. Um, Now... Here's what's happening. So, so realize what they're saying there. This all began in 2015. That's only seven years ago. So in seven years ago, the Supreme Court overturned and said, hey, you can't prohibit assisted suicide. And since then, then they've passed additional bills in quick succession, one which legalized euthanasia for adults with enduring suffering, 
And then another one just last year, which legalized it for those struggling with mental illness. So you can see where this is going. And the article tells some really troubling stories. It goes on to read, in many cases, desperate Canadians are being offered death in lieu of treatment the system can't or won't provide them. In one recent incident that triggered national outrage, a Canadian combat veteran reached out to Veteran Affairs Canada for assistance with post-traumatic stress disorder. Instead of providing help, they proposed assisted suicide. Under Bill C-7, which is the one passed last year, to qualify, you will simply need to suffer from something which, quote, cannot be relieved under conditions that you consider acceptable, an intentionally vague framing. So they, this article quotes three different examples where basically people who are both economically disadvantaged, so they can't afford or have access to the treatments that they need, and also who are in you know significant pain or have really significant medical issues, are basically saying, well, I guess I have to choose to die because they're not going to give me the medication I need or the treatment I need. And so this is becoming a, a, a choice of desperation, and, you can, and even physicians are beginning to recommend it. In fact, the second article, which is also from First Things, points out that physicians under this law have to offer this even if they disagree personally with the practice. So doctors are required to make suicide assistance available, whatever their personal views on the practice. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> Chris, thanks for coming to my doctor's office. I have to let you know that uh, assisted suicide is available for you. Unbelievable that, that a doctor who wants to help and who has given their life to caring for people has to, by law, say, oh, here's, here's the option of just dying, of just ending this, of just yeah. walking away from trying to work through this. Well, and the scariest thing is that last bill, C7, that was passed last year that makes this legal for mental illness. So think about how many people who are just depressed or having a hard time in life, now people are going to be telling them, you know what, you should probably just end it. Like that's that's the exact opposite of what someone needs who's in that place. Yeah. So I re reading these articles, I remember back in like seventh or eighth grade, like English class, we did debates on assisted suicide. I don't think it was yet legal in the US, but it was it was with, uh, what was his name? Kevorkian yeah, or whatever. Yeah, Jack where, Kevorkian. Yeah, where that was like kind of becoming more, like it was this controversial thing. And so we had this debate as one of those examples of debate class and moral reasoning, whatever. And this, you know, so at that point, and, and even up until maybe 2015, the conversation seemed to be more framed around if there are certain people who would like to do this. Yeah, is it ethical to do this if someone asks yeah, for it? Yeah, they ask for it. Where this is, they are pushing it on people. Yeah. They are, they are in some of these examples, it's like, it's the preferred treatment because one, we don't want to cover, you know, pay for whatever the medical expenses to, to deal with whatever you're facing. And two, it would be so much easier. And so it, this, this has just become something out of a dystopian novel. This, this, I, <laughs> this has definitely ratcheted up to a degree that I think, and as you pointed out, liberal newspapers are saying, Hey, this is. This is, this is nuts. Hunger this is Games Hunger Games, style. yeah. This is all happening just to the north of you, friends, in the country of Canada. And uh, what that means is it won't be long before these conversations are coming to the United States. Now, generally, we're a little more conservative than Canada, a little more independent than Canada, a little more individualistic than Canada. And so there may be, you know, it might be that these, these conversations first start happening in states where that's really fashionable, but there's other states that 
uh, prohibited, et cetera. But I'm, I'm just saying this is it's not long before this decision might be coming to your doctor's office or to your state. Well, can I take another shot at something? Please. All those people who said socialized medicine was going to lead to things like this and everyone was like, no, it's not going to. Uh, seems that it they were right. <laughs> yeah, it is in Canada. Seems like socialized medicine is leading to encouraging people to just die because we don't want to pay for your stuff. Yes, that's certainly well. And the, the article points out that there is one. I mean, if you go on the internet, you can find all these personal stories of people who have had encounters with this, right? And so the article points out one person who basically, um, the disabled man in London, Ontario, uh, secretly recorded. Now there's a link to the secret recording that I didn't follow. I don't know if you guys followed it. I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole of like, let me watch the video. But this man secretly recorded a medical ethicist suggesting medic- medical assistance in dying to him. And he reminded him that his care was incurring costs north of $1,500 a day. So he was explicitly saying, hey, here's why you should choose this option. It's costing a lot of money to take care of you. So you're exactly right, Chris, that the financial considerations are a, a factor in the equation. And I'm sure... Uh, you know, at socialized medicine probably plays a part in that because now if the state is the one paying the bill, uh, you know, versus you paying the bill if you have it or your insurance company, maybe that makes it a little simpler. I, I think it's interesting, this second article. So the first article just sort of gives the, the details, the data points. The second article reflects a little bit on how did we get here? How are, how are we at a place where a first world country, a highly developed country, a you know, thriving economy is offering people medical assistance in dying. And Ephraim Radner, who's the author of the second article and who teaches at um, Wycliffe College in Toronto, um, uh, observes that actually, so he, you, you went socialized medicine, Chris, which I think as a good libertarian, it's good, get, that's a good connection. And I agree with you personally. I don't know that Bethany does because she's a little more favorable toward, you know, just making things available to everyone. And as Americans, we can have some disagreement on these things, but where he goes, where, where Ephraim Radner goes, is to say this is a, an extension of what we've come to believe about humanity mm-hmm. and about design and about creation. He says, those for whom there is no God see a world that, if it is to be evaluated at all, will be measured only by its usefulness to this or that cause. Without a creator... That which exists, including ourselves, is by default judged by us. This is the central moral claim of assisted suicide. Assisted suicide. We owe it to people to honor their judgment about whether it is better for them not to exist. Once a life's usefulness is finished, then it is best to cast it off. And doing what is better then takes on an obligatory character. Don't we owe the useless the mercy of ending their lives? The mentally ill serve no purpose. Away with them. Are there others who are useless to our understanding of meaning and purpose? Perhaps they should be done away with as well. So what's interesting, and you know, philosophically, he's just saying if, if, if we think in terms of utility, if the purpose of life is to be useful to society in some way, and you're at the place in your you know, degeneration as a human being where you're no longer useful to society, and that's the only category by which we can make meaning of our lives, then, of course, it's the ethical thing to say, well, if you're not useful anymore, then we just should just move you along, put you in a grave so that we can get on with being useful. And only a biblical worldview gives us a 
foundation for what it means to be human that goes beyond our usefulness or utility or, you know, helpfulness to the world. So it really does seem that there's a, you know, you can see how <laughs> the, the other thing Ephraim Radner does is he says, hey, this is slippery slope, right? That's, you're kind of making mm -hmm. the same point. He's saying, look, people always say slippery slope arguments are dumb because they're like, well, if this happens, then this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And that, of course, everybody's always like, well, that's not going to happen. You're just being dramatic. And he says, look, slippery slope arguments have their weaknesses. But the one thing they do get right is the fact that almost always something happens after the first thing. You yeah. know, like there, there yeah. is a, a progression, a direction that we're trending here. The way he says it is the slippery slope argument may be a logical fallacy, but it captures a sociological truth. Laws carry a social weight that moves public opinion and that affects attitudes. In other words, laws etch channels of cultural expectation. So he's saying once something is legal, it does create a certain trajectory and pathway, right? So once medical assistance in dying, quote unquote, is legal, now you have to ask a bunch of questions that you didn't even have to ask when it wasn't legal. And so, you know, let's say you're a person who has some serious medical hardships. And now you're in a country where this is legal. Now you kind of feel like you have to ask the question, well, should I do this? Right. Which isn't a question you would entertain it before that was yeah. legal. So he's, yeah. he's saying that, you know, the, the slippery slope argument, though it is a logical fallacy and it doesn't always get to the worst place it could ever. I mean, your mom, your mom said, you know, you need to brush your teeth or they'll all fall out or, you know, I, they're, they're, you understand yeah. how slippery yeah. slope arguments can be uh, used unwisely, but it's actually true that when we start from an unbiblical anthropology, this is where we end up. Yeah. Because the, the trajectory is human beings need to be useful you as an elderly person or a disabled person or a handicapped person, whatever, are, are less useful than we'd like you to be. And therefore, if we just go down that trajectory, we get to the place where we say, well, we need to get rid of people who aren't useful. And only a biblical anthropology keeps us from going in that direction or, or just a robust humanism that's trading on Christian categories. Yeah, yeah. And, and the tough thing about slippery slope too is it takes time for that slippery slope to take place. And so people who uncritically argue against and say, oh, that's never going to happen. They have the benefit of, we'll see, it isn't happening. And it's like, well, sometimes these things take time. And so we're here where we are. I mean, as I was saying earlier, I remember having these debates when I was like, you know, 13 years old. And so, you know, 43 now. So like, I mean, 30 years later, which isn't in the grand scope of things that long, but it still took some time. It took several decades. And so, but now we're seeing what has happened after the erosion of um, largely sort of biblical assumptions about humanity. And and what's, what's the thing? Is it like the Overton window? I think there's a, an expression for this of what is now seen as possible. And when the Overton window gets moved, we start um, thinking about things in ways that we would never have before. Things that seemed completely out of bounds before are now completely acceptable. And it seems like, at least in Canada, the Overton window has moved in some pretty dramatic and scary ways. Uh, and, and to your point, also, Bob, about the biblical worldview, because what the biblical worldview gives us is not only just this um, view of the people being made in the image of God, it also gives us a theology of suffering that helps us to recognize we are more than, or that we're more, one, we're more than just our utility, but also that suffering isn't pointless and empty, and that 
the, the highest good is to eliminate suffering, just get rid of it. That actually no, yeah, suffering is hard and it's painful and we don't want that. We're not being flippant about that. We don't want that for anybody, but also seeing that suffering, if you have a theology of suffering rooted in scripture and rooted in us understanding us as the image of God, you can see that there's more than just the suffering and we can endure that suffering or think about it in ways other than just trying to eliminate it. I wonder if one of the connections here too is the difference between individualism and a communal oh, yeah. identity, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, most of us have people in our families or our circle of close friends who are disabled in some way or who maybe have mental illness, right? And these people, because they need to rely on us, change us, right? Like our our caring for those around us who need care is draws out our humanity, and so, in addition to the Bible giving us a theology of suffering, it also gives us a theology of interdependence. Yeah. Of the fact that it's not just about is this person accomplishing something in the world that we think that human beings should accomplish. It's about how does this person's existence grow me and change me and call me to a deeper kind of humanity. And so, in a world where that isn't part of the calculation, where each of us is an atomized individual and you're just, we see you based on your utility. No longer can we ask, how is it important for us to have people who depend on others among us? How does that grow us and help us to be more human? Now we just ask, well, are, do you, does your life feel as meaningful as you want it to be? Well, if not, or if someone else decides that it's not, then we should just offer you a, a quick way to get off the planet. Yeah. I wondered too, and I want to. I want to be careful because I'm not. I'm not completely like knocking things like nursing homes and assisted living centers and things. But to your point, Bob, how as a culture we've shifted, and I don't, I don't know how long this shift has taken place, but we got to this place where you think of extended family members, elderly parents, grandparents, where in previous generations and in other cultures they were cl still closely connected. The family took care of them. That was like seen as, a, as an obligation responsibilities. And when my parents get a certain age, I'm now going to care for them. Where in many ways, what, what has happened is we've decided, let's go move them out of our, our home, our life, out of proximity and have someone else take care of them. And again, I think there can be some good and I'm not completely knocking that. But what that has in some ways created is hey, they are an impediment on my life. They're an impediment on my comfort, an impediment on all the things that I need to accomplish, self-actualization. So we need to go put them over here so they, they're not that way. And so I think there's, in some ways, just the way we relate to those, and, and whether that be elderly parents or the mentally ill or whatever, we've, we've tried to remove them from the normal sort of community because they're seen as an impediment. And so it's just much easier to not have to deal with that suffering ourselves and those challenges ourselves when people are close to us, kind of move people off to the side. And if you hear some of these stories, the sad thing is, is that a lot of these folks, they're being preyed upon because they don't have people to care for them. And where did that breakdown take place? And so it may be that in some ways, if, if we want to push back against this, it's not just at the philosophical and the law level, but it's also at the level of, are we trying to build, are we engaging community and building the kind of community where we're not just trying to push 
people who are struggling, are suffering their impediment off to the side so that we can go on with our comfortable lives, but rather embracing what it means to care for people. And again, this is a spot where I think the church could step in in some really rich ways. Yes, at the cost of ourselves. Yes, at the cost of our comfort, but also modeling like what you were talking about of the interdependence and the love and caring for the weak and the least of these. And if we're doing that, that's going to be, I think in many ways, a richer argument against this whole thing than just sort of the philosophical and theological, as important as that is, the communal aspect and how we love people will speak volumes. Do you suspect, Chris, that we will see some article on a website making a Christian case for euthanasia? Is somebody going to do the theological sort of like, oh, we can, we can make peace with this in some way? I'm sure. I haven't seen that yet in yeah. Canada, so I'm actually impressed by that. Yeah. that it, doesn't, it, it seems like the Christians who are you know, engaging this seem to be very unified in the sense that this is not a good thing. But I'm just wondering if <laughs> yeah. I've, I've come to be skeptical of the church's ability to think well on these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there will be somebody trying to pull on the mercy. Um, I'm trying to think of what, what theological angle, what sort of ethical angle. And at this point, you know, mercy, is, you know, is that the ultimate form of mercy of trying to end the suffering? But, um, and again, that's, I think that's what, not wanting to be flippant about any of this because it is, I mean, people are really are suffering and you can understand, I mean, especially if you've, you know, people who their pain is so, whether it be mental illness or physical, and they're just at this place of, I just want this to end. And you sit with them and there's just like nothing you can do. The desperation that's there, that's so real. And so the, it's not just this arguing against it sort of abstractly. Like I, I hope the church responds not just with arguments, but with up close and personal love and willingness to suffer with these people uh, and, and those that we know. And so I hope th- those, there are many more arguments made that way than for, yes. for this. Well, I want, I think it's a good opportunity for us to say to Christians, hey, we need to have a sort of clearly thought through biblical and ethical conviction here because this conversation is coming to us. Like you said, Chris, it might have been seventh grade since the last time you really had to think hard about a case for or against euthanasia. But I think these conversations are coming quickly for us in our society. And Christians need to have an ability to reason morally about this. And I think also to what you just said, actually, this is a place where we need to go to work politically and societally, because I don't think you want to live in a world where this is legal in your country and where now when you go to your doctor, they start recommending, maybe we should just help you die. I just don't think that's a world we want to live in. And if we don't want to live in that world, then we are going to have to be the ones who advocate on this issue if it if it comes uh, to our city and to our state and to our nation, which I think it very much will. So I, I want to say, as we think about how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of everyday life, here's a place where... A, a biblical anthropology. What does it mean that human beings are made in the image of God, that we are not defined by our utility, by our usefulness, by our ability to contribute what society thinks we ought to be contributing, but by the sheer fact that we exist and that we are here, that that, that is what gives us dignity and value and worth. Uh, that our biblical anthropology comes to bear in this place on this issue. And when, when if and when, it's time for us to have some arguments and conversations about this in our own culture. I hope we will uh, be vocal and direct 
and assertive in um, how we tackle this issue. Uh, you know, the scriptures are clear that it is the Lord's to give life and take life, and that um, we do not take that authority onto ourselves. Um, he gives that to the state, as we know in Romans 13, in, in certain ways, right, when it comes to the enforcement of justice in the world. But there should be a pretty clear biblical red line um, around any kind of euthanasia. Uh, this is not something that the Bible would uh, commend, encourage, or that a Christian worldview should be able to make peace with. And so uh, let's continue to pay attention to what's going on in Canada and to beware of the fact that um, these conversations are happening and that um, it may not be long before we have to have them in our country as well. Uh, if you, if this is your first time hearing about this, I hope what it does is to provoke some concern in you, not in an anxious way or a worried way, but in a way that sort of has a little bit of moral anger behind it. I think you should be upset that Canada thinks this is okay. I think you should be upset with the ways that Parliament seems to have even moved the line beyond are you asking for it to let's just offer it to you as an option. Um, and I think as Christians, this ought, to, this ought to stir up some moral outrage in you. It ought to be the kind of thing that um, not, not fretting and worrying about it, but um, seeing here an opportunity <laughs> to strengthen our convictions and how we're teaching our kids about these things and how we're uh, discipling people in the church on these things. This is one of those places where to go back to the slippery slope argument, I just feel like, well, hopefully we're getting out ahead of this argument, you know, because I don't want us to be reacting to it once it, once it's handed to us. I want us to be anticipating that, you know what, if it, if our culture starts to have conversations about euthanasia, let's be people who speak loudly and clearly um, about the value of human life and about the fact that our anthropology is not dependent on uh, utility, but rather on human beings being made in the image of, <clears throat> human beings being made in the image of God. Uh, if you want to read the articles, you can. Um, you won't find them encouraging, obviously. You will find them uh, discouraging, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, helpful. I hope in a in a consciousness raising kind of a way. So, we will link the articles in the show notes and uh, come back to you next week with hopefully a little less discouraging topic to talk about but in the meantime if you're looking for a maid Canada doesn't have one for you the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission so if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context We'd love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.